Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to the always fabulous, ever fascinating Quirks and Quarks listener question show. I know everyone's been impatient for this show ever since we announced that we were going to answer your questions. The sun appears to be yellow. So why does the moon appear to be white? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Well, let's get right to it then. Um, Yeah, the sun is a yellow star and the moon's rocks are gray or black, so... Why do moths eat clothes? Is it nutritional? Now hold your horses here. Give me a chance. Uh, Okay, clothes are made of fibers and moths come from... A lot of musical instruments seem to require more movement of the left hand than the right hand. Is there a relationship between hand use and musical centers in the brain? Now, just a second. Let me just think about the questions before you... I'm wondering how bears tolerate the toxic venom effects and the pain from the stings of hundreds of wasps or hornets in their mouth and throat when they raid a colony. All right already. Well, I mean, it is a good question. If a bear finds How a... will rising sea levels impact the Great Lakes? Stop! Stop! <laughs> we'll get to the answers of all these questions and more today. Just a little patience. Some people. Okay, let's just start all over again. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald, and welcome to the Quirks and Quarks Listener Question Show. Our first question is inspired by a little galactic navel-gazing. Hello, I am Didier Tavanard from Kitchener, Ontario. Most of the pictures of spiral galaxies we see on the web show a very bright bulge at the center. Does the Milky Way have one? And if so, why can't we see it? Here to shed some light on the center of the Milky Way is Dr. Elena Hyde, Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy and the Director of the Alan I. Carswell Observatory at York University. Dr. Hyde, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And just to start off, thank you for the great question. I I love galaxies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. Well, let's talk about our galaxy, the Milky Way. Does it have a bright bulge at its center? Yes, it does, actually. And to see the Milky Way, um, well, it's a little hard for us here on Earth because we're inside a solar system that is actually inside the Milky Way. And since our whole solar system is so buried inside a relatively small corner, we actually have trouble of seeing the shape of the galaxy that we're in. If you look up into the night sky, almost all the stars and objects you can see are actually just other residents of the Milky Way. So can we actually see the bulge in the center? We can if we look into a different wavelength. So looking up in the night sky, as some of us do, if you get to a dark enough place, maybe a park with no lights in it or something, and if you look towards the constellation of Sagittarius, which is where the center bulge is located, you won't see that much. You see a bunch of uh, stars sort of showing the Milky Way shape that we're all familiar with. And the dark regions in the center 
They're not dark because there's nothing there. They're dark because it's dark dust lanes. Um, so there's actually dust and gas in our galaxy. It's the very stars in the galaxy that are causing us the problem of being able to see the bulge. Stars are formed from gas and dust, but all the extra gas and dust in our Milky Way is inside the galaxy and our solar system is also inside the galaxy. Some of those clouds are farther along the disk shape of our galaxy. So our galaxy has kind of a disk shape and uh, all of them block our view in optical light or the light that we can see. Okay, so we got pollution in the galaxy that's obscuring our view. But if, if we could see the bulge, uh, what would it look like? What's it made of? If you could change your eyeballs to see infrared, that would be really cool. But we have telescopes to do it for us. And that will see a bulge of what are many, many, many stars all together in one area. So it's just a really dense region of stars. There's a whole bunch of stars buzzing around um, a little bit like bees going around a beehive, but if the beehive was just replaced by more bees. So it's going around in this sort of circular-ish, you know, elliptical-ish orbits in a dense location. And of course, many stars in the bulge are actually thought to be left over from when the galaxy first formed in the universe and that many stars in close proximity, they actually are thought to host a central compact mass. So I'm just going to use this opportunity to give a shout out to the central black hole of the Milky Way, which is in the center of the bulge. Okay, because I picture the Milky Way as a, as a flat disk. It's in the shape of a spiral, and then this, this bulges in the center with the, the black hole in the center of that. Yes, exactly. And I like to think about it as um, a fried egg. Uh, you've got a flat disk-like structure with kind of a central bulge area. So it's not a bad analogy for what the, um, what the Milky Way actually looks like, just, of course, on a very, very different scale. So you mentioned that we can sort of see it through infrared telescopes. Will we ever get a good optical picture of it? Well, to get a good optical picture, what you really need is to go above the plane of the galaxy. And that is an incredible distance for any spacecraft to travel. Hard to believe just how big the galaxy is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hyde, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on and happy galaxy hunting, everyone. Dr. Elena Hyde is an Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy and the Director of the Alan I. Carswell Observatory at York University in Toronto. As Winnie the Pooh famously said, the only reason for being a bee is to make honey, and the only reason for making honey is so that I can eat it. And that takes us to our next question. Hello, I'm Rick Price from Squamish, B.C., I'm wondering how bears tolerate the toxic venom effects and the pain from the stings of hundreds of wasps or hornets in their mouth and throat when they raid a colony. For the answer, we go to Dr. Clayton Lamb, a wildlife scientist with Biodiversity Pathways at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Lamb, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So how often do bears get stung in the mouth and the throat when they raid a bee colony? I mean, I think it would be quite common. I mean, they're not often raiding these colonies, but when they do, I, I think they get stung quite a bit. 
I mean, I think it would depend on the skill of, of the bear for sure, but I think it could be a hundred stings for sure. I mean, I think the bears are enduring those stings essentially uh, to trade off for the reward that they're getting, which is that that sweet food at the end. You know, a bear's main goal in life is to gather calories, and there's a lot of calories in a, uh, a honey pot. Well, one bee sting is hard enough to, to get, a, get, you know, if you get one. What happens to the bears when they get stung that often? Well, I mean, bears have an uh, an immune response, just like we do to sort of, you know, deal with the um, toxin or the venom that comes in those bee stings. But they also have some natural defenses that sort of ward off those stings. And so, you know, unlike us, bears are heavily furred. So even when those uh, wasps are trying to sting, they may be failed in that, you know, they can't get through the fur. But of course, when they're attacking the mouth or the nose or the lips where it's thin, then, you know, they, yeah, they would get a sting just like us. So are, are they going to be feeling that, like feel the, the kind of sting that we do? I, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, they might not feel it as intensely as we do. I mean, um, not to sort of knock humans, but I think on the pain tolerance threshold, we have a fairly low pain tolerance threshold compared to animals. And so, you know, I think a, a, a sting that we feel as being, you know, quite painful, maybe not as painful for a bear, but still is not a, a pleasant experience. And we get into the dozens or hundreds of stings, you know, that bear is quite uncomfortable. It's sort of a no pain, no gain situation for that bear. It's enduring the pain. Well, a, a bee sting on the outside is one thing, but what about when they get stung in the mouth? Yeah, I mean, that's a really thin bit of skin there with essentially no protection. And, you know, I, I think it just speaks to... Uh, really the ecology of bears, which is that they are so attuned to gathering food and putting on fat so that they can den. And, you know, I think that they are enduring a fair bit of pain to basically, uh, you know, raid these colonies, get the honey and the nutrition that's in there, which is quite a dense amount of nutrition for the, um, you know, in, in space and for the pain that they endure. And they basically take it. Now, when they're raiding a bee colony, are they also getting nutrition from any larvae that might be in that uh, in that nest? Yeah, absolutely, depending on, on the time of year. And they'd probably eat the bees. I mean, bears are pretty indiscriminate eaters. Like each one of those wasps or bees is a bit of nutrition as well. And they eat the comb and you know, the honeycomb and they eat basically everything. But they are looking for uh, the honey and then some of the larvae. As you say, that's sort of the nutritionally dense part of it all. What about the toxins in the venom? Does that, does that affect them at all? Can it make them sick? I, I suspect that it, it could. And I certainly at the, um, you know, when you get to hundreds of stings, you know, it can make people quite sick and, you know, could even um, can harm people uh, potentially. But, you know, I think that we have to remember that bears are also generally larger than us. So, you know, even if say 50 or 100 stings would be a big deal for a person, you know, a, a small black bear is sort of the size or a medium sized black bear is sort of the size of a, a large man. And grizzly bears are, again, in the kind of 250 to 500 pound range in the interior of North America. So they would require a lot more of the toxin to sort of have that kind of negative effect. And it's it is possible, but I don't know of any bears that have keeled over from raiding a colony yet. Do the bears get stung anywhere else besides around their face and inside their mouth? Well, between their paws, you know, just like a dog, they have, you know, the very minor bit of webbing in there and it's it's thin, thin skin, and it's also thin, thinly haired. And so I'm sure that they would get stung uh, between their toes at times, especially given that they're using their 
pause to sort of, uh, you know, move the, the colony around and try to access the honey and potentially inside the ears as well, another spot that doesn't have hair. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Clayton Lamb is a wildlife scientist with Biodiversity Pathways at the University of British Columbia. Our next question may make you see a favorite condiment in a new light. Hi, I'm Richard Armistead from Winnipeg, Manitoba. My question is about muscle cramps and mustard. I heard from my niece, who's an avid soccer player, that eating a small amount of mustard helps muscle cramps go away quickly. It seems to work for me. Is this a real thing or a placebo effect? Love to hear your answers. To answer this burning question, we reach Stuart Phillips, a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Phillips, welcome to our question show. Thanks for having me on, Bob. I appreciate it. Now, are you familiar with this mustard remedy for leg cramps? I'll admit that mustard is a new one, but uh, I've heard of lots of different types of approaches. So, And this one maybe isn't out of the realm of uh, other things that I've heard of. So what do we know about the cause of muscle cramps? I, I think that's the most disappointing part. I'd love to be able to give you a, an answer as if uh, exercise physiologists have been studying this for years and tell you that it's due to one thing or another. And the simple answer is we still don't know, which is why um, remedies like mustard powder or pickle juice, as others um, examples, uh, still persist. But what actually happens during a cramp? Yeah, there's 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 a number of theories. One is is that uh, the balance of ions across a muscle membrane gets messed up, and so the muscle, instead of being able to fire and contract voluntarily, is somehow become involuntary to any sort of brain stimulation, and your brain is just firing off, and the muscle is very tight and refuses to relax when you ask it to, and you get this painful cramping sensation. What causes that? Again, we're still really not sure. Uh, any ideas? Um, I think it could be due to, uh, as I said, uh, an imbalance of ions across the membrane. Most membranes have a preponderance of sodium on one side and potassium on the other, and that could be disturbed. Uh, there are some people that subscribe to the theory that calcium and magnesium might play roles in this imbalance. And then there are other people who say maybe it's something that originates in the brain and the brain has sort of had a small short circuit and in sending out signals and unable to relax the muscle. Uh, I think the chances are it's probably a combination of all of those. And then when you add exercise in, you've got things like dehydration, uh, you've got added stress and a few other things that could probably compound this. So if there are ions involved uh, or things like uh, sodium, calcium, is that why electrolyte drinks are often suggested as well? Yeah, that that's uh, part of the theory is that, of course, when we sweat to dissipate heat, when we exercise, we don't just lose water, we're, we're, we're losing ions as well, predominantly sodium. So a lot of uh, sports drinks have sodium as a replacement, and some of them have calcium and magnesium as well. Magnesium is an often used anti-cramping uh, ionic, if you like, supplement. Uh, mustard powder comes into its own category, though, and it's probably working through a different theory. <laughs> now, do we know if those electrolytes actually work? Actually, the the 
reports that are out there and the clinical studies have been done have indicated pretty poor relief of these muscle cramps. Generally stopping doing the exercise, getting a little bit of fluid on board. If it is an electrolyte drink, then it may be the better. Um, but stopping is the easiest way to make them go away. Okay. So how might mustard fit into this this whole picture? Could it have any effect? Yeah. Well, first of all, most mustards or mustard powder have a lot of uh, ions in there, particularly sodium. I think the other theory is, is that spicy concoctions and, you know, some mustards have a little bit of spice associated with them, or even uh, some runners subscribe to hot peppers, um, sort of short circuit the neural signal that might be causing the cramps. In other words, it's almost distraction. You put something hot and spicy in your mouth and your brain's like, what the heck is that? And then all of a sudden it, it, it short circuits that involuntary signal it's sending down to your muscle that might be contributing to the cramp. Now, our questioner is also asking about the placebo effect. So could it be just the fact that you're you're taking something will make you feel better? Yeah, well, and, and this goes to the point of, you know, when we, we conduct the hard trials, these, you know, randomized control placebo trials, uh, it appears that lots of things really don't hold up when they're tested rigorously. Uh, I think, though, it, you know, not to dismiss people's relief that they feel, um, the, the placebo effect is strong. It's very powerful. The pain relief, it's estimated it could be as high as about 30% of people get a pain mitigation with, with a placebo. Uh, and, and if a muscle cramp goes away and it goes away because of or in spite of your mustard powder, maybe it's not for me to tell you not to do it. If it works, use it, right? Yeah, if it works, use it, yep. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me on the show. Stuart Phillips is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Our next question comes sunny side up. Eric Redekop from Kamloops, British Columbia wants to know, how old is the photon from the sun that lands on my skin? For the answer, we're going to Dr. Eric Donovan, a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Calgary. Hello, Dr. Donovan. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Bob. It's, it's great to be back. So how long does it take from the time a photon is produced inside the sun for it to land on Eric's skin here on Earth? I mean, this is one of my favorite questions. It's something I've thought about a lot over the years. So a, a photon that's created in the center of the sun it has a long journey between when it's created and when it gets to Eric's skin here on the earth. You know, what happens is this, the, the photon is created as a consequence of nuclear fusion at the center of the sun. And then it starts its journey outwards from the center of the sun, colliding endlessly. I mean, it's, it's many, many trillions of collisions. It's absorbed, it's re-emitted. And so, it, you know, in, in a very real sense, the photon doesn't exist for very long. It's absorbed and then it, it's, that energy is stored briefly in something. <clears throat> it's re-emitted. And that re-emission chain takes place for upwards of millions of years until it gets to the surface of the sun. And then once it leaves the surface of the sun, it takes only eight minutes to get to the earth. Wow. Well, what are yeah. these photons bumping into inside the sun that's taken them so long to get out? This is something we don't think about very much as, as individuals, I think, in our daily lives. I don't think about it in my daily life. But if you look at the air and space around us, 
it's filled with molecules and atoms and ions and so on. And a photon that's traveling through that space will, you know, travel unimpeded if the density of things is not very large. And then if the density of things is large, it's that motion is impeded. And so if you think about inside the sun, it's incredibly dense, the material. And so a photon might travel only a millimeter or half a centimeter or a centimeter before it hits something. And when it hits something, it either scatters or is absorbed. And that something will be, you know, a a, a helium nucleus, a hydrogen nucleus. It'll be a more complex nucleus. It'll be another electron and so on. And there's no straight line paths, you know, for very long inside the sun. And and how far does it have to go from the center of the sun out to the surface? Well, it's, it's only a, you know a few hundred thousand kilometers. But again, let, let's say that you're the shortest person in a huge crowd of tightly packed people. So you don't know which way is which. And so you just kind of push your way a little bit between two people and then a little bit and a little bit. You can imagine that it might take you years to go 100 meters. So at what point do these photons become the familiar photons that we see that would hit Eric's skin? It's really the last time they're emitted from the surface of the sun. And so the photon that we see is created at the surface of the sun. And that photon has only lived eight minutes by the time we see it. Like, that's it. Like, it, it ah. will leave the sun and hits us. But the idea that Eric from Kamloops, the idea that he asked, you know, that energy started say, 5 million years ago at the center of the sun. Dr. Donovan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Eric Donovan is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Calgary. Our next question comes from southern Alberta, where warm weather systems called Chinooks can cause the temperatures outside to swing by more than 20 degrees in just a few hours. Kathleen Connolly writes, Whenever Calgary gets Chinooks, I get migraines. Is there a connection between barometric pressure and headaches? Do people in other parts of the country get weather-related headaches? Here to answer this question is Dr. Serena Orr, a pediatric neurologist at the Alberta Children's Hospital who specializes in headache medicine. Dr. Orr, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So, can weather changes cause headaches? Well, it turns out that they probably can based on several studies, specifically the question from your listener around Chinook and migraine attacks that has been studied a couple of times by my colleague, Dr. Becker, in the early 90s and 2000s, where they looked at the relationship between migraine attacks in adults and Chinook days, as well as pre-Chinook days. And what they found looking at headache diaries and Environment Canada data was that both pre-Chinook days and Chinook days were associated with increased odds of getting attacks of migraine. And interestingly, the Chinook days specifically with high winds, so greater than 38 kilometers an hour, seem to be most strongly associated with risk of getting a migraine attack. Oh, okay. So the Chinook involves higher temperatures and winds. Our questioner is asking about barometric pressure. Does that play a role in this? Yes. Well, we know that um, as a Chinook rolls in and right before it rolls in, the barometric pressure drops. And so it's thought that that's one of the reasons that Chinook days and pre-Chinook days are associated with 
increased risk of migraine attacks. There's also other studies that have looked in other regions of the world at the relationship between migraine attacks and other types of headache and changes in barometric pressure. And the studies, you know, some of them show low barometric pressure is associated with increased risk. Others show high. Others show changes in barometric pressure. But I think the most consistent is that, you know, these changes in barometric pressure, like we see with Chinook winds and other weather phenomena, seem to be associated with risk of migraine attacks. So what's going on in the brain during these headaches? Oh, it's complicated. So (laughs) specifically with migraine, it's a brain network problem. But interestingly, um, there's different phases. So even before the pain starts, people with migraine have changes in their brain and sometimes clinical symptoms like fatigue, irritability, increased hunger, changes in thirst. And then there will go into a pain phase, which is the headache phase. Um, the first area of the brain to light up even before the pain starts is called the hypothalamus. So that's a, in the deep center of our brain, and it's considered our center for homeostasis, which means it regulates basic things like hunger, thirst, temperature. Interestingly, you know, there may be, because it regulates temperature, and there is some information to show that there's connections between the vestibular system, so that's the inner ear system and the centers for it in the brain, and the hypothalamus. That may be part of the connection between weather and migraine, because we know this hypothalamus lights up at the beginning of attacks of migraine, and it senses incoming changes in temperature and possibly barometric pressure. That's a bit of a stretch. We need more research on that. Um, But we think that an accumulation of environmental triggers like weather changes, changes in sleep, changes in stress can tip somebody over the edge towards having a migraine attack. Wow. So it's multifaceted. It's like the brain saying, things aren't right right now. I'm not feeling good about this. Exactly. That's exactly how I explain it to patients. It's not necessarily one thing that may trigger an attack, but an accumulation of different environmental internal or external changes that may tip people over. So is there anything people can do to avoid Chinook-related migraine headaches? Obviously, we can't change the weather, unfortunately. We'd like to. (laughs) There was a study published just a few weeks ago, the first study that actually looked at using a medication during the prodrome phase before the pain starts and found that it was more effective than placebo in preventing the pain from starting. So if we know, and again, this is a stretch and we'll have to study it more, but if we know that some people are sensitive to barometric pressure changes or different weather changes, and if we know that they're coming, could people take a migraine um, acute medication like ibuprofen, you know, during a Chinook wind day or a pre-Chinook wind day and prevent an attack, it's possible. We don't have any specific studies, but in theory, it could work. So in other words, uh, keep an eye on the weather. And if you know a Chinook is coming, prepare ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Orr, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Serena Orr is a pediatric neurologist at Alberta Children's Hospital and a clinician scientist at the University of Calgary. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, 
and you can get them all by following the big story wherever you get your podcast. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to the Quirks and Quarks Listener Question Show on CBC Radio One. Now, on to more of your questions. Hello, I'm Heather McDermott from Kitchener, Ontario. A lot of musical instruments seem to require more movement of the left hand than the right hand. Examples would be violins and guitars. It seems odd considering how most of us are right hand dominant. Is there a relationship between hand use and musical centers in the brain? Here to help us answer this question is Dr. Jonathan D'Souza, an associate professor from the Faculty of Music and the Brain and Mind Institute at Western University in London, Ontario. Dr. D'Souza, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks very much. First of all, is this true? Do many musical instruments require more movement of the left hand than the right? Yeah, in many ways it is true. What we get with something like the violin and the guitar is a kind of different roles for the different hands. So if you think of the piano as a different kind of example, with the piano, each hand is pushing the keys and producing the notes that way. And the piano does tend to be kind of right-hand dominant. The higher notes are played by the right hand, and so the right hand plays more of the, the fast melodies, usually is playing more notes than the left hand. With the guitar or the violin, though, the left hand is doing the work of selecting the notes. The left hand is, is holding down the strings and picking the pitches, and then the right hand is actually creating the sound, starting the sound, either by picking the string or pulling a bow across the string. Uh, so I would say the left hand has to do a lot of work for the violin and the guitar, especially if you're playing fast melodies. Your left hand fingers have to move very quickly and accurately to do that. But I wouldn't underestimate the right hand. So the right hand is selecting the string that's going to be played because often we're not using all the strings at the same time. Uh, the right hand is actually articulating the sound, starting the sound, stopping the sound, shaping the sound, whether it's short or long, these kinds of things. It's controlling how loud or soft the sound is. So all of these other aspects of the sound, other than the pitch, everything is being created by the right hand. And the left hand is basically just selecting the pitches. Ah, so are you saying then that the right hand is putting more of the emotion into the music? Yeah, I think in many ways, all the things that give that expression, the subtleties of timing and, and feel, a lot of that comes from the right hand. And so I think the right hand is actually very important. Of course, with this kind of situation, the hands are really working together as a system. And so it's not that either hand is in charge. It's really this dance between them where they have to be really tightly coupled, really tightly in sync with each other so that, you know, in a very fast melody, every time the left hand is selecting a new, a new note, the right hand is right there in time ready to play it. Now, our listener is asking how all of this is represented in the brain. So again, to contrast with the piano, when we look at the brains of pianists who started to study the instrument very early in childhood, we do see that the right-hand area of the brain is very built up, uh, that there are actually structural changes in the brain that come from that early musical training. And if you look at, a, say, a violinist, you'll see, again, a violinist who has started their training very early in childhood. 
you'll see that the left hand areas are also very built up. But the fascinating thing there is it's really just the areas for the left hand fingers. The size of the left hand thumb area is comparable to the general population. It's only the fingers which are really doing that work of playing and selecting the, the notes and, and pressing down the strings that get built up. Wow. Now, how does this work with left-handed musicians? An interesting thing is many left-handed musicians actually prefer to flip, to play a left-handed instrument, or to play on the other side, and again, use their non-dominant hand on the fingerboard or the fretboard. Uh, so we can think of examples like Paul McCartney or Ashley McIsaac plays the fiddle left-handed and switches over, or Jimi Hendrix playing left-handed. One thing that uh, seems to be the case here is that left-handed musicians also seem to be more flexible about switching back and forth. So for example, Jimi Hendrix played the guitar left-handed, but he also sometimes played a right-handed guitar. And there's interesting research on this. For example, if you take a piano keyboard and you flip the pitches so that the high pitches are on the left and the low pitches are on the right, uh, right-handed pianists have a very, very difficult time playing anything on an instrument that's kind of turned upside down like that. But left-handed amateurs and occasionally more advanced left-handed pianists are actually able to kind of remap everything, flip it around, and play. There's actually one professional left-handed pianist who has created instruments like this for him and actually performs and, and feels that he's more expressive because the melody is in his dominant hand. Well, as a left-handed person playing right-handed guitar, I'm not good either way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes practice either way, right? Um, for sure. Dr. D'Souza, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Jonathan D'Souza is an associate professor from the Faculty of Music and the Brain and Mind Institute at Western University in London, Ontario. Hi, I'm Ellen Liberman in Vancouver. Here's my question. Why do moths eat clothes? Is it nutritional? For the answer, we go to Joseph Bowden, a research scientist with Natural Resources Canada in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, who specializes in insect ecology. Hi, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks, Bob. First of all, when we talk about moths inside our homes, what species are we talking about? Yeah, so really just a couple of species in particular. So there's um, all kinds of, the, the Lepidoptera as a order is a super diverse uh, insect group uh, containing some 180,000 plus species. And they've been around for millions of years. So it's perhaps not that surprising to learn that uh, some of these species have uh, adapted to eat our sweaters and socks. So there's just these two species in particular, a case-bearing clothes moth and a common clothes moth that have uh, evolved to a very unique niche that uh, where they've been able to exploit our uh, ability to move them around and disperse them all over the world, and then also an ability to eat some of the clothing that we wear. Well, is it the moths themselves that are eating our clothes or is it their larvae? Uh, moths and butterflies have uh, what we call hol a holometabolous lifestyle. So they go through uh, an egg stage, a caterpillar stage, and a, a pupil and adult stage. And the caterpillar stage is really where they're accruing those resources 
to mature through these different stages and become adults. So they, that's where they're that's where they're doing the feeding is at the caterpillar's life stage. Ah, okay. So the moths have laid their eggs in our clothes. The caterpillars come out, and that's what's doing the damage. So what's nutritious about sweaters and carpets for for these caterpillars? Of course, the clothes that we're talking about here are those that are made of wool, like uh, mohair, alpaca wool, and even some silk. So these are all organic compounds that are derived from animal products. And therefore, in theory, very highly proteinaceous and nutritious uh, for insects, if you can exploit that as a, as, a, as a resource. And so these insects have very unique adaptations where they have gut uh, symbionts. Uh, so they have uh, bacteria in their guts and enzymes that actually allow them to break down these really complex proteins, including things like keratin, which is a very complex protein, and use that as a nutrition source. So what are the uh, nutrients that these caterpillars are getting from all our clothes? Uh, anything that hair stores. So if you listen to shampoo commercials, for example, and they're going on about all of these nutrients and things that this shampoo is going to give your hair, <laughs> you know, we, we have, we, we get a lot of nutrients go into our hair growth. Um, so, and especially proteins. And so again, our hairs are, are jam packed full of uh, proteins. And so they're able to use those, those nutrients. What advice do you have then for people to protect their clothes and keep them from being eaten by moth caterpillars? If you do get uh, these moths in on your clothing, uh, the best way to really take care of them is through uh, something like dry cleaning. Uh, you could also put them into uh, your deep freeze for at least 48 hours. That should, that should take care of the moths. Uh, I didn't think about putting them in a freezer. That's a, that's a neat idea. Dr. Bowden, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. Joseph Bowden is a research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. Hi, my name is Bob Crosby and I live in Nanaimo, BC. My question is, the sun appears to be yellow. The moon is visible because of reflected sunlight. So why does the moon appear to be white? To shed some light on this, I'm joined by astronomer Anna O'Grady. She's a Canadian researcher from Newfoundland and Labrador and currently a McWilliams postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. O'Grady, welcome to our question show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join you. So why does moonlight appear to be more white than sunlight? So this is a really fantastic question, and I really had to think about it. But the answer to this is it's actually all about perception and where the object that we're looking at, whether it be the sun or the moon, appears in the sky. So the sun actually only appears to be yellow when it's low on the horizon, like at sunrise and at sunset. When the sun is high in the sky, it's white. Daylight, for example, is a pure white color. Now, you should never, ever look at the sun without special eye protection. But if you were to look at the sun with something like eclipse glasses, it would appear to be white. And astronauts in space have also talked about how the sun is pure white when they look at it from space. Okay, so it's our atmosphere that causes it to change color, not the sun itself. Yes, exactly. And the exact same effect happens with the moon. If you catch the moon right when it's coming up over the horizon or going down under it, it looks a little bit yellow, not pure white. But when the moon is high in the sky, which is when we often look at it, it appears white. Okay, so sunlight and moonlight are actually the same color then. Exactly. Yeah, it just depends on where in the sky you're looking at it. 
So why do the sun and the moon appear more yellow when they're low on the horizon? So that's because from the horizon, light has to travel through much more of the Earth's atmosphere to reach the ground and our eyes than when the sun or the moon is directly overhead. And our atmosphere scatters away blue light much more than red light. So the longer it takes for sunlight to travel through the atmosphere, the more blue light will be scattered. Hence, you get a yellower or even reddish color of the sun during sunsets and sunrises and of the moon when it's near the horizon. This is also why lunar eclipses appear to be red. I've also heard the amount of dust and dirt and pollution in the air affects the redness of a sunset as well, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Like, for example, when the wildfires from Quebec, all that smoke was pouring down onto the eastern seaboard, the sun looked red, even though it was really high in the sky in much of New York and other eastern states. Because of mm -hmm. all the pollutants in the air, those tiny particles also do a really good job of scattering away the blue light and leaving only the red light to reach our eyes. That was very true here in BC as well. <laughs> now, if you were able to get up close to the sun and, and look at it, is it actually yellow? Because I've heard it called a yellow star. Mm. So if we were to get up close and look at the sun, it would still appear white to us. And that's because how humans view color, it's more of a perception, our own perception, than anything else. We evolved such that the wavelengths that the sun outputs the most power at combined appear to be white light. So the sun, you know, as our star is always going to appear white to us. It's called a yellow star in sort of astronomy nomenclature. That's more about comparing it to other types of stars that you can find across the galaxy and the universe, where there are stars that are redder and bluer. We kind of refer to stars that are at sort of middle temperatures like our sun as yellow, even if to our human eyes, they would appear white. Ah, so the color of a star changes because of its temperature? Yes. Hotter stars are more blue and cooler stars are more red. Now, I know that you study yellow supergiant stars, and we've heard of red dwarf stars. So what would it look like if their light were reflected off our moon? That's a great question. So if you were to suddenly transpose a red dwarf uh, in the place of our sun, so all of a sudden there was a red star instead of a yellow star, then the light reflected off our moon would appear to be much more orange or red, no matter where it was in the sky. However, if we as humans evolved on a planet that revolved around a very red star, we would still see it as white light. It's just that the receptors and cones in our eyes would change such that the light coming from a star like a red dwarf, even though it outputs much redder light on the electromagnetic spectrum, we would still evolve as humans to see it as white light. And we would probably not call it a red dwarf star in sort of that universe where our sun was a different color. Wow. So as you said at the beginning, it's all about perception. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. O'Grady, thank you for your time. Thank you. Dr. Anna O'Grady is a McWilliams Postdoctoral Fellow at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Our next question has to do with the fate of inland water as greenhouse gas emissions heat up our planet. Hello. 
My name is Jose Iguñez, and I'm calling from Powassan, Ontario. My question is, how will rising sea levels impact the Great Lakes? Thank you. For the answer, we're going to the expert in the federal government's public service whose job it is to keep tabs on the Great Lakes. Dr. Frank Seglinix is a water resources engineer with Environment and Climate Change Canada in Burlington, Ontario. Hello, Dr. Seglinix. Welcome to the Quirks and Quarks Question Show. Thank you very much, Bob. What can we expect for the water levels in our Great Lakes as our climate warms and sea levels rise? Well, it's important to recognize the different processes that affect the rise in sea levels and the one that change the water levels in the Great Lakes. So for the ocean levels, it's mostly a factor of thermal expansion of water. As water gets warmer, it actually increases in volume and the melting of the ice sheets and the glaciers on the land. Whereas for the Great Lakes, the change in water levels is dependent on the balance between how much precipitation is coming into the basin and how much evaporates. So does that mean that rising sea levels in the oceans will not impact the water in the Great Lakes in any way at all? Uh, well, first of all, we have to recognize the difference in elevation. The elevation of Lake Ontario is about 74 meters. And if the sea level, ocean level, were to rise 74 meters, there'd be a lot more problems in the world than just what's happening on the Great Lakes. So <laughs> they are very disconnected. You, of course, would have problems further downstream of the Great Lakes in Quebec City and Montreal, which are much closer to sea level. But the actual rise in the sea level doesn't actually affect how the water drains from the Great Lakes or what's actually happening on the Great Lakes inland. Okay, so the changes that you're talking about with precipitation and whatnot, that's more climate-related than sea level rise. So how do you expect the water levels in the Great Lakes to change in the next 100 years? What we found in the latest research is that there'll be an increase both in the amount of precipitation falling on the Great Lakes, but also the amount of evaporation coming off the Great Lakes. So what's really going to determine the fate of the Great Lakes will be how much each one of those rises individually between the precipitation and the evaporation. So right now, the current uh, thinking is that the change in precipitation is going to outdo the change in evaporation by a little bit. So in general, we are going to see levels rise on the Great Lakes, but even under climate scenarios that say are, are two degrees uh, change in global mean temperature, the average would only go up by about maybe 20 to 40 centimeters. What's really important is that those same studies show that the changes in the extremes of the water levels, both lows and highs, those will increase. And we attribute that to just locked in weather patterns. So we can see scenarios where there's a locked in weather pattern, maybe a high pressure zone that skirts all the water around the Great Lakes, and then the water levels would go down. So we like to push a concept called adaptive management. People have to be able to adapt to both higher water levels and lower water levels than what we've seen in the past. Now, what about the difference between the individual lakes themselves, like Superior versus Huron versus Erie versus Ontario? This has a lot to influence of the characteristics of the lakes, how big the drainage area is in compared to the size of the lake, and if it has an upstream lake. So we're seeing less of an effect on the first lake. Lake Superior, of course, does not have a great lake above it. So that has less of an influence of climate change on that lake. And then the effects of climate change seem to grow as you go further downstream, because not only do you have the local effects of what's coming into that basin, but you also have the effects of the upstream lakes affecting it as well. So you kind of get this uh, accumulation effect. Oh, so does that mean Lake Ontario is going to see the biggest change? 
Lake Ontario does see a lot of the bigger changes, but we also have to remember that Lake Ontario does have its outflow regulated by a um, what's called the International Joint Commission Board. So there's some influence of that as well on the lake level. So there's kind of a, a balance between those as well. So what should people who own waterfront properties around the Great Lakes take from this? that the world is changing. So when you're designing something like maybe your dock, uh, maybe make it a floating dock so that it can handle both those low water levels when they happen and the higher water levels. But also don't just rely on the historical water level range. The The range on most of the lakes is about two meters. And we're seeing that under a, a changing climate of let's say one and a half to two degrees of a change in global mean temperature, you can add about another half meter both on the top and the bottom end of that. So that's what you should be planning for when you're doing construction. You want this infrastructure to be there probably for the next 30, 40, 80 years. Well, that's the weather you're going to have to design this for, not the one that you've seen in the past 100 years. So the water levels of the Great Lakes will change, but it's not because of sea level rise. That is the conclusion, yes. Dr. Segleniex, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Dr. Frank Seglaniex is a water resources engineer with Environment and Climate Change Canada. And for the last listener question on today's show, we're going to Joe Keane, a grade 12 student from Bowmanville, Ontario, with a question about one of the more intriguing aspects of quantum mechanics. He asks, can quantum entanglement explain the extreme similarities we see in identical twins who are raised apart? For the answer, we're going to Cheyenne Majidi, who has encountered this question before. Cheyenne is a PhD candidate and Vanier Scholar at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, Ontario, who specializes in quantum computing. Hello and welcome to our holiday question show. Hi, thanks for having me. What went through your mind the first time you heard this question? That I would love for that to be true, <laughs> but, you know, it's probably not. Well, I understand that uh, you're good friends with an identical twin. <laughs> yeah. So I remember once we were driving together and their twin sister was actually essentially on the other side of the world. And we're driving and they, they just said all of a sudden, yeah, something's happened uh, to my sister. And then later that night, we find out that she had had something you know, pretty significant happen to her. And I was thinking, oh, man, like this is just so bizarre. Like, what do you, how do you even explain things like that? Wow. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is odd. I don't know how to make sense of this. I don't know how to fit this in with, with what I've learned so far in life. <laughs> Did quantum entanglement come to mind? Quantum entanglement is, is always in mind. <laughs> it's the thing that gets me excited, gets me out of bed in the morning. And it's just, it's exciting because it, it almost sounds fantastical, almost sounds magical. Well, what is quantum entanglement? So let's say we have two atoms and these two atoms are entangled. And when two things are entangled, you can't describe the state of one thing without also describing the state of another thing. So let me give a really simple example. Say I have two atoms and they have this property in them. And without getting into the details of the property, I'm just going to call it up or down. Okay. So the only yeah. things that these atoms can be is they can either be up or they can be down. If they're entangled, it's possible then that they're either both up or they're both down. And so if one is up, the other one's also going to be up. And if one's down, the other one's down. And they can be separated really great distances from one another. And they still have this, this correlation. So if I know the state of both of them, I can say, okay, well, they're clearly both up. 
So you really can't think of them independently anymore. They're really part of one whole thing, even if they're spatially separated. So how far can quantum entanglement be pushed in terms of the complexity of the systems being entangled and the distance between them? So in distances, right now we're at the order of kilometers and constantly trying to push and take that further. In terms of how big of systems, still much smaller than anything our eye could make out. So if you're familiar with terms of buckyballs, so you know, dozens or so of, of nuclei that can be entangled with one another. So we're far away from full twins who are you know, spending maybe their life on opposite sides of the globe. Ah, so in other words, you're saying that the uh, connection between twins is too complex for quantum entanglement. You, you think it may not be possible you know, in the future? So the optimist in me and uh, the child in me that you know, wanted to become a researcher and a scientist says, absolutely, one day maybe that, that could be. But the grown-up scientist in me thinks very unlikely just because, one, right now we're doing our best and so much money and so much time is being invested in researching quantum systems to try to be able to entangle things at greater distances and at larger sizes the best we can. And even with all that time and all those resources, we're on very small systems, things much smaller than our eye can see. And also for how long can we preserve the entanglement? Not that long. Maybe for seconds or much less time than you're probably scrolling your phone in the morning. Are we able to keep entanglement between two systems? Well, what's holding us back? What's the limiting factor, as far as we know right now, that's keeping us to simple things like atoms and photons and not more complex systems? The reason that it gets harder as we move things apart is that systems are constantly interacting with their environment. So I'm sitting here on my chair, I'm talking to you right now, but the temperature from the environment is interacting with my body. There's electromagnetic radiation in the environment coming from my cell phone to my cell phone that also interacts with my body. And all these things can break the entanglement between two systems. So entanglement, in a sense, it's actually really easy to generate because things constantly get entangled with everything in their environment. That's what makes it so hard to keep entanglement between two things we want to keep entangled. Because while we want them to stay correlated with just each other and nothing else, they're constantly trying to become entangled and interacting with everything else in the environment. So heat, radiation, noise, all these things can break the entanglement between two systems that we're interested in studying. Ah. So in other words, entanglement is happening all around us all the time. Yeah, it's everywhere. Every year, it seems like some new phenomenon that we previously had a hard time understanding can be understood with entanglement. Ah. So entanglement is explaining more things each year, but I'm still skeptical, but let's say at least hopeful that maybe it could explain something bizarre as what we see with twins. <laughs> Mr. Majidi, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Cheyenne Majidi is a Ph.D. candidate and Vanier Scholar at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. And that's it for our Quirks and Quarks listener question show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. 
It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks is produced by Olsi Sorokina, Amanda Buckwitz, Sonia Biting, and, for the final time, Mark Crawley, who's retiring with this show. All the best to you, Mark. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.